Grow up. Remember that? Remember? Remember last week? Grow up. What Tom continues to hear even into his 30s? Grow up. That was Paul's call to the church in Ephesus last week. He, he's been, uh, we, we're in the second half of the book of Ephesians right now. Um, the second half being where Paul is describing how we're going to live now that we've been given this new life in Christ. Um, we're in a, a series called Made New to Live New. The first three chapters of Ephesians talk about us being made new. And now the, the second three are talking about what that means practically as we live out this new life of faith. This new eternal life that's within us. This new life that's fit for the age to come. The age of the kingdom of God. And Paul says one of the big problems is you got to grow up. Because if you don't, if you don't, there's danger. We talked a little bit last week about how kids and teens, uh, before you really enter into adulthood, you're really malleable. You can be twisted this way and that way. You can go to and fro. You're not settled. You're not grounded. We've even seen um, in brain science and some of the studies of, of the way that fMRI um, visuals of brains, we see how adult brains are hardened in a way that they're protected from being um, you know, pulled off the path by every new idea and every new thing that comes along. And now in this week, Paul's going to continue the thought in a way. He's going to explain what happens if you don't. He's going to say, this is the way the world is. And the world is a place where people haven't grown up and something terrible has happened to them. Paul's been gone from the church in Ephesus for some time now. He's probably about to die. He had this tearful goodbye we read about in Acts uh, where he, he's not even able to go into the city because he caused such a ruckus the time he was there, the last time he had been there. And so he invites the elders of the church to come down and meet him in Miletus. And, and there they, they meet and Paul prays and he gives them a charge of what they're to do to carry on his ministry. But Paul's been gone and now he's a little bit worried. Are they still on the track? Paul heard from these elders that more people have been joining the church. The church is thriving in Ephesus. And yet, because it's thriving, Paul has that same feeling that anyone who's carried something like a child from infancy and sees that child grow up worries, are are they okay? Are they still on track? Are they being taken care of? Are they growing up right? And Paul's worried. Have these new Christians been built up the way that I would have built them up? The way that the Lord built up his disciples. Because the stakes are really, really high. If you're able, please stand and let's read together um, about the abolition of man. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you, church in Ephesus, you, Coast Bible Church, you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, the old humanity which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man, the new humanity, the new life 
that was created according to God in true righteousness or justice and genuine holiness, you may be seated. Some of you may recognize the title, The Abolition of Man. It comes from a a series of lectures that C.S. Lewis gave, um, I believe in the 1960s, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, And and these three lectures are put together in a book, and and he has this this really, this incredible phrase. It becomes the title of one of the lectures, The Abolition of Man. It's 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 an arresting phrase because Lewis, like us, has two things kind of going on in mind when he hears the word abolition. Abolition can mean uh, like to abolish, like to destroy, to end, to finish. But for those of us um, in the First World West who um, bear with us uh, the, the history of slavery, abolition also has an overtone, it carries an overtone, a notion of the movement that happens in uh, the 17 and 1800s to end slavery in the First World in the West. Abolition was a good thing. It liberated, it freed people up. There was this blight on the collective conscience of human beings in the West that had to be eradicated, and that blight was the treatment of human beings as as chattel, as slavery, as slaves. But what Lewis does when he capitalizes on this is a recognition that now in his world, and I think it's even worse now, it's even more so now, there is a notion that men must be made free. That human beings are shackled by many things. Uh, Marx would say religion is one of them. And that shackling needs to end. People need to be liberated to go out and live an authentic human life. To be freed up to be who they really are in the deepest parts of themselves. Authentic humanity has to be given over to men and women. They have to be freed up. They think they're in the process of an abolition of slavery. The slavery of religion, in some cases of economic oppression, of every kind of oppression. These progressives, these, these liberators. C.S. Lewis said, no. What you have done is you have destroyed humanity. You have robbed human beings of their authentic calling. You have made them into little more than animals. You are sending them down to a path of self-destruction, of hopelessness, of despair. What is needed is a restoration, not an abolition. I think Paul captures this in our text. Right in the middle of it, he has this phrase, It just you, you kind of almost gloss over it. But right here is the crux of the problem that we face. Paul says, Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness or greediness, and we'll talk about those things in a second. But being past feeling. The word is like, it's like a, a deadening. It's, a, it's a, a numbness almost. And in the context, you realize that what he's talking about is not like the numbness that we might feel after emotional exhaustion, right? We've been going through crisis, and there's all these issues going on in our lives, and we're just, ugh. And there's that sense of being past feeling where you, you, know, you pass out, you fall asleep because you're just exhausted. This isn't what he's talking about. In context, he's talking about hearts that are darkened, understanding that, that, that is blinded. He's talking about that feeling we have of right and wrong. It's what we call moral sensitivity. 
Paul sees in what he calls the Gentiles, the world, the pagan world, an entire class of people who can no longer even feel what's right and wrong. It's just dead. It's numb. And as a result, they've given themselves over to lewdness. That's weird. It's, it's New King James English. Um, but what it really is, it, it almost always, uh, that word that we get lewdness there, almost always talks about sexual license. It's this, this, this class of people who are, are so past any notion of good, bad, right, wrong, that they just cast themselves onto the only thing that makes them feel anything. Thank goodness that would never happen in our culture. If we were to update that, that next phrase, to work all uncleanness with greediness, it would be, uh, it's a weird construction. There's a lot of actually uh, kind of stilted Greek here, and it's because Paul's really trying to bring out some, some notions. Right here, greedily go after corrupting things. Uncleanness, from, uh, from Paul's perspective, he probably has a Jewish context for that, talking about the, the holiness laws and purity laws. But really, he looks out at, 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 at everything that goes on. He sees all these things that people chase after that corrupt them, that deaden their souls. That make them, we talked a few months ago, the walking dead. Utterly without a capacity to know the good anymore. And they do it with greediness. They just run after it. Because again, they can't feel anything inside. They're utterly and completely lost. And so the sex, the corruption, whatever it is, they just run for it. Because in one way they've been liberated. Right? Right? They've been made free from God. If we were to read, um, and this verse is, it's, it's very difficult in the New King James. It doesn't, uh, it's hard to, to catch it. So this is, this is how I would gloss it. If I were to do a contemporary English version. They, these Gentiles, these pagans, have lost all moral sensitivity and have given themselves over to whatever sick behavior takes their fancy. They go off greedily after every kind of corrupt, unwholesome thing. I was talking to Aaron uh, just last night, actually, about what it was like to live in Japan. We were talking about one of the things that was interesting is I was a part of an expat community, expatriates. Right? I lived there for two years, and uh, I was in Gunma Prefecture, a very, um, you know, kind of... Uh, not a lot of cities there, a lot of rice farmers, kind of, we call it Inakamono, country people. Um, and the, the expat community was, uh, you know, less than a, a tenth of a percent of the, of the entire population of our state, our prefecture. So there was maybe a hundred of us who kind of, you know, knew each other and, and lived in Gunma Prefecture together for a couple of years. And what was so interesting to me is, is because we were in this, this tiny, tiny subset, this minority, we all sort of came together because, honestly, we were the only people whose first language was English. Every single one of us came from different places. I had friends from Scotland, friends from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, um, even some people from France who were just excellent English speakers, Great Britain, all over Great Britain, Irish friends. Um, and so we actually didn't have that much culture in common, but enough that it was, it was easier to hang out together in a lot of ways than it was to hang out with the Japanese people. And what was so interesting is that we all came, we all came with these feelings of displacement and alienation because in some ways we were all extremely lonely. We were in a culture that was utterly foreign, 
utterly foreign, and we were grasping, grasping for something that was familiar. And one of the things that happened um, in, this, in this loose community of, of people was um, the kind of partying that you just can't believe. I mean, I, I saw people um, just do things that are just off the reservation in terms of nothing they could have gotten away with, even in their own home countries, right? Why? Why? Because they have these feelings of, of emptiness, of loneliness, of despair, of displacement, and alienation, and they're in a context where there's no constraint because the culture is so foreign. The Japanese looked at us as barbarians anyway, so they sort of assumed that we were going to do crazy things. They didn't care. There was no constraint. There was no, no one saying no to us. There was just a mad, a crazy, a, an irresistible desire to feel home. And one of the ways that expressed itself was in, to use kind of New King James English, debauchery. All the walls came down. People felt together because of substances and physical connections. What's so wild is that Paul has that in mind when he accuses an entire culture the Greco-Roman culture around the church in Ephesus, he says, that's what they're doing. They are so cut off from their authentic humanity that they go to anything that will give them a feeling of connection. They've lost all moral sensitivity and have given themselves over to whatever sick behavior takes their fancy. They go off greedily after every kind of corrupt, unwholesome thing. C.S. Lewis understood that the abolition of man, the end of humanity, took place when people stopped having the connection and, and, and dependence on the person of God and his church. But how does that happen? How do we get from here to here? How does it take place? I just thought, we actually, we have some insights here, again, from uh, the neurosciences. And again, we, we find a way in which um, sort of some of our contemporary sciences and Paul are remarkably connected, remarkably parallel in the way they're, um, they're calling out the problem of our age. And I just wanted to, 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 to go over a couple of things with you. And this is really about the neuroscience of moral sensitivity. We actually know a little bit more than we used to about how it is that we have feelings about what is good, what is bad, what is ultimate, what is not. Um, one of the things that we've found, uh, and we, I'll, I'll show you a picture in just a second, but we found that moral thinking, um, it's strongly associated with the parts of the brain that are implicated in emotional responses. Emotional responses. This goes contrary to um, a lot of thinking that's gone on over the years about um, ethics and morals. It, typically, it was thought that what the goal of moral thinking was to do was to empty yourself, be dispassionate, empty yourself of all your, rash, uh, all your emotional you know, sensitivities, and instead be really coldly logical or reasonable or rational about what's what, and then make a decision. But what, um, what we found is that when you actually look at people and you, and, you, and you see what they're doing when they're trying to think through a moral issue is that it's not at all rational. In fact, it's, it's, it's super, super emotional. It very deeply implicates the most intense um, emotional um, places in our brain that are most implicated or, 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 or shown to, have, um, to, to be where emotional responses take place. And so there, there's a, a sense that, that, that when we do try to think morally, we have to go 
to something about us that, that makes us feel certain things. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. A, a second thing that we've noticed when we're looking at moral thinking, it's, it's strongly associated with regions in the, in the brain that are implicated in things like communal embeddedness, being part of a, of a tight-knit community, what you might think of as a family. Um, what, what this means is, is it, it's, we, we think, and the, there's, there's some... Actually, Paul will help us know that this is the case. But uh, what, what, what's probably going on is, is when people are thinking about whether or not something's right, wrong, good, bad, whatever, they're having something subconscious go on that's something like, do people like us do stuff like this? Think about that. Do people like us do stuff like this? They're thinking not just you know, in some abstract, is this right, wrong, good, bad? What they're thinking about is, is the kind of person I am and the kind of community that I'm a part of, do we affirm or do we run away from things like this? And so when we're deciding all kinds of, of different things, and we'll speak a little bit more about how the Bible doesn't actually speak to a lot of the things that we have to, to um, figure out these days, but when we're thinking about them, we're, we're thinking about our commitments, the people that love us, and whether or not they're the sort of people who would do things like this. Our, our moral sensitivity is shaped by the community that we're a part of. Um, you, you remember, it's not cool anymore. These things are fads. Um, but for a while, uh, in the mid-2000s, it was cool to have a little bracelet, and it said, what would Jesus do? Why was that bracelet necessary? Or why did people like it? Because it identified you as part of a particular community with particular commitments. And so if you were a part of that community, you were trying to think, how do we do stuff? And that would help you make decisions when you're faced with all the complicated issues that that take place in the world. That's how you were sensitized to morality. Look at this picture. This is a brain... Um, this is uh, from a, a study that was done in 2007, I think, 2008. And uh, I want you to see, okay, so uh, they're, they're given some very complicated moral questions, really complicated ones, not the easy stuff, you know, is it wrong to murder? No, like difficult things that are kind of gray area type stuff. And, and so these questions were given to a bunch of different people. And the green section is what really lit, lit up on the brain when people who are, um, you know, mentally healthy, normal folks, um, started to think about these issues. And that green spot, that's what we're talking about. Emotions, communal um, embeddedness, a sense of identity with a community, that lit right up. The red and the yellow um, are two other uh, classes of people. Psychopaths and sociopaths, that's the red, and um, people who had brain damage to the green section, that's the yellow. And what that indicates is that people who didn't have the same sort of um, cognitive equipment that, that normal people had to go somewhere else. And so people who didn't have things like strong emotional empathetic connections, sociopaths and psychopaths, people who, who weren't deeply embedded in a community, those who were unable to form uh, or had more trouble forming um, emotional connections with people, their brains had to do other stuff to try and come up with a sense for what's right and wrong. This is actually a very concrete example of what it looks like when moral sensitivity can be deadened. The good news is, of course, that even um, those with brain damage have have been shown that the brain can actually um, come up with new ways. God's given us enough equipment that we can um, still sort of make up for our losses. But what that shows, though, is it shows that our moral sensitivity, our, our recognition of right and wrong, good and bad, 
everything we ought to be doing, it's deeply connected to feelings about where we belong. Feelings about where we belong. Paul, when Paul's talking about it, so abolition of man, so we just talked, you know, neuroscience and moral sensitivity, very interesting. Paul actually has a lot of language about knowledge, and we need to look at that too, because it's not just where you belong, it's not just how you feel, but it's also about what you know. And so I want you to notice, as we go through this, I want you to notice um, that Paul's bringing two things together, you know, rational knowledge, facts, and whatnot, and a particular kind of life, and a particular kind of community. Let's look again at the text, starting at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness in their heart. Life of God there, I mean, really, the life that God lives um, we could talk a little bit about the Trinity, but we don't need to because we're going to talk a little bit later about what this is. But it's a kind of life that's deeply connected, deeply in tune with the sort of existence that God has. And if you think Trinitarianly, God lives eternally in communion with God's self, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not just, it's together. But then also notice all the other language, because of the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance, knowledge, important, because of the blindness of their heart. Hearts are blind. They're, they're, they can't see the facts right. But notice the connection there. The connection is because they, they're ignorant, because their hearts are blind, they get cut off from life, from community. The life of God, God's community, his people, they're cut off because they can't recognize it. They can't see it. It's opaque to them. As a result, then, they have no moral sensitivity because, as C.S. Lewis told us, they're, they've abolished their own humanity. And then, as a result, they run off, do crazy things. So here, in the last section of the text, we're going to have this connection between moral sensitivity and knowledge and the way it's brought together in the person of Christ. And this is what I want us to draw from it. The church, Coast Bible Church, the church in Ephesus, the big C church, any place where Christ is, is proclaimed is the place where social embeddedness and the true knowledge about God are brought together. Remember, Paul's been gone for a long time, friends. And, and as he's been gone, he's wondering whether or not the Ephesians have carried on the faith, whether or not they've continued to do all the important things and taught the important things. And so he's worried. He reminds them, but you have not so learned Christ. And they, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. This is Paul being like, if, I hope. I hope they haven't forgotten how to do this since I've been gone. I hope that they've carried on the faith and testified about the Lord Jesus. If that's happened, then this has happened. You've learned Christ. It's a weird phrase. It shouldn't, shouldn't it be? I mean, we know, we know how the, you learned about Christ, right? There should be a preposition there. That's true not just in English, but also in Greek. There should be a preposition. This is a very strange construction. You have not so learned Christ. Um, if you think uh, about the way we do that in English, you have not so learned tennis, right? We can make that connection, but not usually with a person. We'd say something like tennis, or you've not learned soccer that way. You've not learned baseball that way. You've not learned running that way. Usually we talk about sports in this way. Why? 
Well, it's not that, um, it's because there's something more than just facts about um, soccer. Uh, Alice just got her, um, her shin guards yesterday. Uh, and she, they feel weird. If we put them on her and we made her run around the house with her shin guards on, look, I, I don't care about soccer, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't like sports. I like you know, reading um, and, and being by myself. But a lot of people think that sports are great, and I'm for that. I'm with it. One of them is my wife, who is a former professional soccer player. So family moving a lot. Wait, so I'm, I'm for it. I'm all for it. But what I notice, what I notice is that Alice straps on her shin guards and says, Mommy, it feels weird. Well, Alice, if you're going to learn soccer, it's not just, you're not just going to look at a diagram. This is how I would coach. I'd be like, here are the X's and O's, and there's going to be a circle here. To, or, do you get it? That's how I would do it. That's not how you learn soccer, okay? You have to put on the, the shin guards, and you've got to run around in them. You've got to get used to them. You've got to get used to the feel of the game. This is something I, I've been over the years of my marriage forced to watch soccer and forced to pretend like I care about it. And I've learned a number of things about how soccer, there is a, there is a, a flow to it all. You're watching, you're watching how, it, how it, it, um, it evolves. The field evolves as people move in and out. And it is the kind of thing that you can't just you know, reduce to like, if X, then Y. It's not a logical thing. It's an organic thing. And it's something that you, you, don't, you don't learn it by, by, by getting all the facts straight. You learn it by doing it, by being a part of it, by experiencing it. And as you do that, you get the flow of soccer. You become good at soccer. So too when you learn Christ. The reason Paul doesn't have the about preposition there is because learning Christ is not a set of facts about Jesus and the way that he lived. Rather, it is a way of being that you experience in the church. It it continues, look, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, not heard about him, heard some stuff that he did, although that's going to be part of it, but heard him. How does that work? Again, it's the community living faithfully in light of the teachings, in light of the stories, in light of everything they know about Jesus, living that out and figuring it out as you go. And in that, you hear Christ himself because the Spirit is present. This is not knowledge as such. It is knowledge applied. It is put to practice. It is embedded in people, in a community. Paul's knowledge language implies a community that embodies Jesus. Think about this. So you're sitting there and you're reading the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus says some important things. It's very, you're like, wow, I can't believe he did that. What an amazing thing that he did. And then someone comes up to you and is like, so, stem cell research, what do you think? And you're like, oh, um, Matthew 11, uh, 11t... 30, no, nothing about stem cells in the Gospel of Matthew. Or really even abortion in the Gospel of Matthew. There are no abortion clinics in the ancient world. They do throw babies away in the trash. That's different. Nothing about democracy, right? When you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, it's really difficult to find the place where Jesus tells us how to vote. Or a lot of stuff. The Gospel of Matthew is, tells us what it looked like when God was in the flesh in a particular context, in a particular age, and the community of faith reads that, understands it, memorizes it, and passes down in tradition what that looks like in us. 
We improvise in order to truly continue to live Christ's life out here. Uh, just let's go back to the text just a little bit lower. Uh, notice this right here. Um, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old uh, man which grows corrupt. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is another place where the text, the Greek's super weird. The spirit of your mind. That is a very strange way of thinking about um, what goes on in your mind. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Spirit, remember in, in Paul's thinking, ancient Near Eastern thinking, spirit is very closely associated with wind, blowing, movement. It's as if the mind itself has um, a kind of restless creativity as it's seeking to, to understand things. That has to be renewed over and over. As you're trying to think Jesus now, here, in this place, your mind has to, to search and, 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 and be renewed as it goes back and forth. Remember, remember, if you've already learned Christ, it's not going to go too far off to the left, too far off to the right. You have that deep-rootedness uh, in, in, the, in, in the, the truths of the text, but now you're offered and given the opportunity as a part of this place to figure out what that means. Here, now. Jesus isn't physically present in Ephesus. He's not physically present here at CBC in the way that we think about physical presence. Instead, if he is to be alive in us, if the Spirit is to empower us, we need fresh insight, new possibilities. And that only comes from being deeply embedded in the people of God, the faithful, orthodox people of God who have been doing this day in and day out for 32 years. Coast Bible Church, 49 and a half years. That's where it happens. When this happens, um, the, the restoration of man, when, when this happens, the community, the church, reinforces our Jesus talk against the dominant culture. The culture looks at what we do here, and they're like, that's ridiculous. But what the culture does, doesn't have that we have is a kind of moral sensitivity that, that's generated we start to feel what's right and wrong. We start to have uh, 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 resources from which to actually say truthfully, this is what God wants. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is evil. We can feel it. And I use that word intentionally, feel it. There is knowledge there, yes, but it's also strongly implicated in our, in our sensitivities. And that's going to be important as we... Um, face an increasingly uh, hostile environment uh, that the culture at large is going to tell us what's, um, how we're wrong <laughs> and how we're um, evil and oppressive. And, um, and, and, and we're going to have to be able to tell them, no, you are not liberating anybody. You are destroying souls. Note this, um, the, the us versus vent, dominant culture versus community language. Paul picks it up. He says, the rest of the Gentiles. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. New King James there is, um, it's, it's glossing the rest of the Gentiles because the way Paul is talking is it sounds in a, in a very, in Greek, it sounds like he's calling everybody who's not in the church in Ephesus a Gentile and everybody who is in the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus, not a Gentile, which is weird. 
because everyone in the church in Ephesus, for the most part, is technically speaking a Gentile. They were not circumcised. They grew up in Greco-Roman culture. Why is Paul saying that outside the church is Gentiles and inside the church is something else? Well, we go on. Um, notice the old man and the new man. Um, Paul sees the world in terms of old humanity, new humanity, the title of our series, new life, you know, new, made new in Christ to live new. There's a new humanity that's going on. And when, when Paul says new humanity, he means authentic humanity, real humanity, the actual true story of what humanity was always meant to be. What's going on out there, the, he calls it the Gentiles, these people aren't Gentiles anymore. They're new human beings. They're Christians. They're a different race of people. They are not you know, Ephesian or Scythian or slave or free or male or female or any of the other distinctions that the world creates, they're Christians and that's it. Their life comes from Christ, their identity comes from Christ and nothing else. Every other way of doing it is the old humanity. It's a humanity, it's, it's an abolition, it's a destruction of humanity, it's the death of humanity. And everything that happens in the church is the new humanity. It's the authentic, the real story. It's who we were created to be from the very beginning. It's helpful um, throughout uh, Paul's letters when you see old man, new man, think humanity. He's not, uh, it's, he's talking, he really is talking about the, the uh, race of human beings. There's something special and new in Christ. And so if you've got this Gentile old humanity and you've got the new humanity, what is the authentic way of being, hum- of being human? That is the question. That is it. And it is as, as relevant, as real now as it was in Ephesus when Paul was t- writing to the Ephesians because our culture increasingly looks like the pagan Roman culture of which they were a part. Are you going to be a part of the abolition of humanity freed up to destroy yourself or are you going to be a part of the restoration of humanity? Telling the true story about who Jesus was and living authentically and creatively in light of it. Every choice, every moral sense comes from somewhere. The culture says, it feels good, do it. Because there's nothing of substance in your heart anymore. The culture says, you are a biological machine. You have been set, wound up like a little toy, and you're going to clap your cymbals, and then one day you're going to die, and that's it. So go. Go after your sick desires. Go after your corrupting behaviors. That's all you've got. The church says no. No. We do know what authentic humanity looks like. We know the life of God. God lived it here in Christ. After his resurrection from the dead, when he ascended, he set it up so that his spirit would come, enliven us, give new hope, new light to our minds, so that we could see new ways to be him, to live the real life, the triune God life, now, hear us. That's why the church must never stop talking about Jesus. It's like a silly thing to say, right? Oh, of course. Except when I say stop talking about Jesus, I mean thinking through what it means to be Jesus here, now, 21st century, 2016, Coast Bible Church, 50th anniversary, coming up. What does it mean to be Jesus to this place, South Orange County? The second thing it means is that 
what Paul said last week. And that is, it is of the utmost importance that you be deeply, deeply embedded in the church community. Because without that, without the nourishment of our community, of our, of our interactions with each other, of our being together, of our thinking through Jesus together, of our thinking through the scriptures together, as we encounter new challenges and as we try to help raise our kids and, and as we try to work through our careers and as we try to do all of the things that we do, without this body here mutually informing, we are in danger of having our moral sensitivity as dead as the place around us. And that means that we, on the, on the staff of this church, we, as, as el, uh, on the elder board, we have a commitment, we have a call, a responsibility to this place to make sure that what we are doing speaks to your genuine experience. We do. If, if what we're doing here is just a set of facts on the screen that, has, that doesn't help you think and act and live now, faithfully, then we're doing something wrong. We have to offer a compelling alternative vision of what it means to live in Orange County in the 21st century. That's our, our mission. It's our goal. We have to do it. And if we're doing that, I ask for you to prioritize it. To say this matters. Being in this place with these people, learning these things, being sensitized to authentic humanity is of the utmost importance. It cannot slip. It must be number one priority. It's going to matter for you, your kids, your grandkids, even your great-grandkids. After you're gone, the legacy of your prioritizing this will matter. The stakes are really, really high. We live in a place that has abolished humanity. And our mission together is to participate in God's restoration. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will have hearts and lives that are sensitive, open, creative, that we will be a place that lives Jesus now, that reads about him, that knows his life, and that will learn it, learn to live it, learn to be it here, 2,000 years later, as, as fresh and as lively, as, as much you on earth as when you were actually on earth. God, I ask that for this body. I ask that for my life, for all of our lives, our corporate lives. God, make us people who are like that, who clearly sense good, evil, authentic humanity, and the false lies that surround us. God, we ask for your grace. We know that you give it limitlessly. We pray that we'll live it out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.